Good morning, everyone. Uh, the scripture reading today is out of Romans 11, verses 16 through 32. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. This is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off, for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Thanks, Eric and Stephen. <laughs> That's sweet. I love hearing the, the, the kids' voices. Let me open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll take a look at the scriptures. Lord, we... Um, we run to our stronghold. Um, this is a time of trouble. This is a time of distress. There is a, a lot going on in our world right now. Lord, I pray that, um, that your church would remember who they belong to as we face continuing political turmoil, um, contested election. Um, there are many voices who are uh, rejecting the results of the election. Uh, Lord, the court cases have gone through. Uh, it, it's just a really complicated issue. And so, Lord, I pray that in the midst of all of this, that your church would retain 
her prophetic voice, not for one political party or, or one candidate, but Lord, for the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, for the coming of his kingdom, not uh, earthly kingdoms. Lord, you, you told Pilate that your kingdom is not of this earth, otherwise your followers would be fighting. And so, Lord, I pray that we would remember that as we uh, try to sort through all the confusing information in, uh, in politics today, Lord, that your kingdom is not of this earth or we would be fighting. Uh, Lord, your kingdom is something far greater, something more vast. And so help your church to remain true to that message. And Lord, we pray for uh, the pandemic that is coming across the planet. Um, Lord, the, uh, the, the predicted fall surge is happening. We're in the middle of it. And so, Lord, would you uh, continue to shed your grace on us, continue to show us your mercy. We thank you for the vaccines that you've had um, created in a very short period of time. Uh, we pray for their safe delivery. We pray that um, many people would respond well to it and recover. Father, for those in the hospital, even now, um, Father, we pray that uh, the doctors who are attending them, the nurses who are attending them would be able to um, find the strength they need, Lord, because their strength would come from you. And so work through those ordinary means of grace to us and, uh, and to the doctors and nurses as well. Um, Father, I pray for your churches in the midst of all of this. There's, there's an awful lot going on. Um, tensions are high, emotions are high. Lord, um, having shared with some uh, fellow pastors, they're having similar struggles of just wondering how we're going to make it. Lord, I pray that we would all be leaning on and counting on you. You said that you will establish your church. And so we count on that, Lord. Establish your church here in the world and show us our role in that establishment. And Lord, now as we turn to the scripture, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would use these words that you inspired to instill in us a deep and abiding trust in our hope in Jesus Christ, that what he has accomplished for us is true and real and that we can trust that. Lord, would you further us in that, um, cause us to lean more heavily on Jesus, to find him more beautiful, to see grace as more amazing. And Lord, bless our time now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So we're coming to uh, the, the final stretch of, of Romans chapter 11. Don't forget um, that Romans 9 through 11 is really one thought. It's, it's kind of like this should be one sermon, but it would be a really long sermon. Um, Paul is, has asked that question at the beginning, what about the Jews? Um, if we are justified by grace or justified by faith through grace, if it is because God has foreknown us and predestined us, then what about Israel? Because the, the nation, Paul's people have largely turned away and rejected Jesus Christ. If that's happened to them, is that possible that could happen to us? Could we wind up losing something that we've gained? And Paul's answer was emphatically, in no, no way, absolutely not, by no means. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to see kind of the culmination of that argument, the, the pinnacle of it, where all of his thoughts come streaming together. And uh, the way that this lays out is verses 17 through 24 is an illustration. And the illustration is this olive tree. And then verses 25 through 31 are the application. And so we'll take a look at each portion. We'll take a look at the illustration and then the application. Uh, so the illustration is this olive tree. Um, he says uh, uh, in verse 16, if you back up to verse 16, what he said is, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. 
And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So that was how he finished what we looked at last week. He offered two illustrations, a lump of dough. And so the picture of that is, is you've got a lump of dough, it's risen, and you pinch off a piece, and you take that piece and you say, I'm going to offer this as first fruits. And so it's going to go into the, the temple that's going to be offered uh, to God. That piece now becomes holy because it's been broken off and it's being offered to God. Well, that original lump now is considered holy as well. Um, and then the other illustration he talks about is he looks at a tree and he says, if the root's holy, then the branches are. And that's the illustration that he's going to go with as, as he moves into this last section is that tree, uh, the root and the branches picture. And so here's what he says. He says, some of the branches were broken off and you, the wild olive uh, shoot, were grafted in among the others to share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. So I think the place to start with this is ask the question, what is the root? What is the nourishing root of that olive tree? What's that picture of? Um, there's a bunch of different answers. Uh, some would say Jesus. Jesus is that root, right? Because uh, John chapter 15, uh, verse 5, John, uh, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. So you can look at that root and say, well, that's Jesus. That's talking about uh, Jesus as that nourishing root and we're grafted into him. Um, I don't think that's entirely wrong, but I don't think it's exactly right because how were unbelievers ever grafted into Jesus? Um, that doesn't seem to fit with, with the fuller picture, although I think it's part of it. And, and when I come back to what I think is the right answer, you'll see these kind of all fit together. Um, another one that I read was that uh, that root is the patriarchs, uh, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the fathers of the faith, if you will. And the reason that they say that is because in verse 28, uh, Paul said they are beloved, or he will say it in, in verse 28, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers. So the forefathers have this, this anchor that makes them beloved. Um, in chapter 9, verse 5, when he's recounting the blessings that Israel has had, one of them, it says, to, belong, uh, to them belong the patriarchs. Uh, so that's, that's saying that the patriarchs are that root, that, that uh, those people are. Um, I, don't, I don't think that's the fullness of it necessarily, because how are the patriarchs nourishing? How are they a nourishing root? Um, they could be a root as in the structure is built on them, uh, but I don't know if that answers the nourishing part of it. Uh, so they're in part, uh, they're kind of it, but uh, not in the fullness. Because remember, Paul will say in a moment, um, don't think you support the root, but the root supports you. So it has something to do with uh, being there before the Gentiles came. So I, I don't know that necessarily the patriarchs is the best answer, though it's part of it. Um, what Paul uh, promised is, he said um, in chapter 9, verse 4, they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So what I think is the patriarchs may be part of what that root is, but my take on it is the root is everything that Paul just enunciated. It's the adoption and the covenants and the, the law and the worship and the promises. It's the patriarchs. It's all of these things. And it comes to its full, full measure in the arrival of Jesus Christ. So the patriarchs aren't not it. They're just not the fullness of it. And the reason I say that is I think that idea of a root sinking down into the earth um, has this picture of 
a very earthiness. It's grounded in reality and it grows up. And so you could look at this and say, well, it's what God has been doing since the fall. God has been working since the fall of man to bring to himself a people for his praise. And so that would include uh, Adam and Eve as they, they name their child, God him. Uh, we, we have the one that God has promised as uh, um, the, uh, uh, the patriarchs, uh, Abraham is, is promised that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars and they'd be a blessing to the nations. Uh, these are those things that God has been working on. He's been building into. And so what happens is you take a look at that, uh, um, this, this, what I'm going to call the arc of redemptive history, what God has been doing throughout time. That's that root. And where it comes to its fullness at a certain point is you get all of these branches, which is the nation of Israel, the Jews. And eventually Jesus comes from that, from them, um, according to the flesh is Christ. So Jesus is born from them. Now something has changed. There, there's something different now because branches are starting to be broken off. Whereas before they may have been unfruitful, but they weren't removed. They, they, they were still part of the tree because it had a purpose in growing. But now that, that Jesus has come, something different happens. And so I think that root is getting at that flow, that building of what God has done. Um, he tells the, the Gentiles that they have been grafted into that tree, that that tree is now furnish, or nourishing them and strengthening them. Um, as we look through the history, we see what God has been doing, and we see it over and over again, that God is faithful to unfaithful people. And that's what we're grafted into. We're justified by faith, not by our works. And so one of the things that he warns the Gentiles is they're, they're being grafted in. He says, don't be arrogant toward the branches. Well, which branches is he talking about? All of them? I, I think it, we have to say that the branches that he's warning them not to be arrogant against must be the ones that are broken off. And the reason I say that is in verse 19, he'll say, but you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Um, and then he warns them, don't become proud. So I think he's talking about those branches that were broken off so that they might be uh, grafted in. And he says, don't be arrogant toward them. Um, that is the, the Jews who have not been faithful to Jesus Christ. We're not allowed to be arrogant toward them. Um, I think that one sentence, that one thing that he says, just a few words, should end forever any hint of anti-Semitism within the church. Um, we are not to be arrogant toward the Jews who have not followed Jesus Unfortunately, it hasn't. Um, there's a history of anti-Semitism within the church. Martin Luther, toward the end of his career, um, went on a, a tirade against the Jews because they didn't believe the gospel. And he said that they should have their homes confiscated and, and their businesses closed down and all of those things, and they should suffer. And it's like, you can't say that. Don't be arrogant toward those branches. Um, we're not allowed to do that. There, there have been stripes throughout the history of the church where we've done that, and it just can't stand. We can't be arrogant toward those, those non-believing Jews. Um, so can we be arrogant toward believing Jews? Well, obviously not. They're in the church. They're part of who we are. So which Jews can we be arrogant toward? None of them. That's what I mean by it. it that should kill anti-Semitism. Besides, you got to look at this from Paul's perspective. Remember at the beginning of chapter 9, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for them. He didn't have loathing. He had sorrow and anguish for them. He wanted them to hear the gospel. And so we should adopt a similar attitude. Don't be arrogant toward those branches. Yes, they were cut off so that you could be grafted in. But you should be earnestly seeking their salvation, desiring that they come to know the Savior that, they, that has come from their own people. 
And so when we consider those branches, what Paul tells us is note the kindness and the severity of God, the severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you provided you continue in his kindness. So he's, he's looking at the situation as it stands now. And he says, look at the picture that this tree is painting. Look at what it's showing. It shows both God's severity and his kindness together. It, it shows both of these things shining out at the same time. There's severity to those who've fallen. The, those branches that have rejected the Messiah, those who have stumbled over the stumbling stone and fallen, there is severity waiting for them. It's the wrath of God. So in chapter 9, verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Behold the severity of God. Now, they were part of the tree for a long time, and God endured with great patience those vessels, those branches. But now there's a time has come, and they have been cut off. And so we shouldn't look at them and, and click our tongue and roll our eyes or be sarcastic about it. We should grieve. We should, we should feel sorry that they have had such a tremendous blessing offered to them and they've rejected it. And so Paul, he ends his statement with, um, but God's kindness toward you, provided you continue in his kindness. Verse 22, he says, otherwise you too can be cut off. And then he tells us in verse 20, he says, don't become proud, but fear. What's he getting at? What, do you, what can he possibly mean by that? We're justified by faith alone. How could we be cut off? Why should we fear? Well, I think what he's getting at is if we look at anybody, any person, any type of person, and we say, they, I've rejected Jesus, and I have not. And we look to the, the scriptures and we say, well, that's because God foreknew me and he predestined me. And if we think that somehow makes us superior to those who've rejected Jesus, if there's something that makes us better than them, then we're missing what actually happened. Because what we're pretending of, or what we're, we're convincing ourselves of is there was something in me. God saw something special. He saw a glimmer of hope in that, in that, that person because they're worthy. That is absolutely not what is supposed to happen. God chose us when we were totally unworthy. And so if we look at somebody else and think, I'm saved and they're not, therefore I must have something going for me. We're not trusting in justification by faith alone. We're trusting in our inherent goodness in some fashion. And so that's how you can be cut off, is you're, you're justified by faith alone. If your faith is not in Jesus Christ, if your faith is in your own inherent worth, fear that's a terrifying place to be. The, the fact that God has chosen us, that he has taken us and grafted us in, should be a humbling experience, not one that fills us with pride. So check yourself. Are you proud? Are, are you looking down on those who haven't received Jesus Christ as their Savior, who have, have rejected him? If you're proud about that, then Paul's word to you is fear. Be very afraid for your soul because you may not be trusting in what you think you're trusting in. There is a faith that saves and there is a faith that damns to hell. The faith in yourself will not get you saved. The faith that saves is looking away from yourself and saying, Jesus is the only reason I'm here. And so when you consider all of humanity, you don't look and go, I'm better than that person or that type of person or, or the person who thinks that, that, that I'm superior to them. 
That's trusting in yourself. So don't be proud, but fear. Otherwise, you too will cut off. Continue in God's kindness. His kindness to us is that he said, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, but I have freely justified them, not by their works, but by faith. And so don't fall into that trap. You have to check your heart regularly because it stirs up. It can come up out of nowhere. Verse 23, he says his hope then is this. If they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. So as he looks at those Jews who have rejected Jesus, one of whom he was, remember who Paul was before his conversion. He was a persecutor of the church. He hated the church. He wanted to eliminate the church. And yet God picked that branch up off the ground and grafted it back in. And that's his hope. So as he looks across and he remembers his, his countrymen, his kin according to the flesh, as he thinks about specific faces, this person I was in school with, this, this uh, uh, cousin of mine, this neighbor that I grew up with, my teachers, my, my, maybe my parents, we don't know the state of his parents. As he thinks of them, the hope that he has is this, God has the power to graft them in again. That is the hope that he has. Um, in, uh, last week, we saw him in 11.13 say, I magnify my ministry in order that I make, may, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews, Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So he's looking at those branches and he's saying they're cut off, but they're not done. It's not over. God could still graft them in. So just because they're unbelieving and unfruitful now doesn't mean that they'll always be that way. There is hope that they could be grafted back in. How are they going to be grafted back in? Well, we'll see that. They're going to be grafted in by faith. Um, when Paul is talking about that grafting back in, he says God has the power to graft them back in. Well, don't forget our thesis statement for the book of Romans, Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, for grafting back in to anyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So that, that is what he's been thinking of this whole time, is that this gospel is to the Jew first and to the Greek. It comes to everybody, and he's hoping to save some of his countrymen as he brings the gospel to the nations. So that's kind of the, the, the picture in a nutshell, that, that picture of this, um, this olive tree the nourishing root is what God has been doing throughout history. He's been working toward an end. He's been saving people. He's been drawing people in. Um, it has ne never been exclusively Jewish. Um, there, have, there have always been people brought in who are from outside. So, for example, um, Judah's son takes a wife named Tamar and marries her and, and winds up, they wind up dying because they're all horrible people, but Judah winds up taking her and Tamar has children. And Tamar is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Uh, later on in the conquest of Canaan, when they, when they take the city of Jericho, a, Moab, or a, um, a Canaanite woman named Rahab is saved and she's brought into the covenant family and she becomes a grandmother, a great-grandmother of King David. Um, one of their offspring take off and go to Moab and marry in Moab and a woman comes back with them named Ruth, and she marries Boaz, one of, um, one of uh, uh, Rahab's offspring, and she's in the lineage of Jesus. Moses, he married, uh, um, uh, um, not a Moabite, um, 
where'd they, oh, Midianite, a Midianite. Um, he married Zipporah and she was not part of the covenant family and yet she's brought in. So this, this olive tree has been in history predominantly Jewish, predominantly Israelite, predominantly Hebrew, but not exclusively. These others have been brought in. And so that's our picture is, is Jesus is able to graft you and God is able to bring you into that redemptive history, that flow of redemptive history to feed you richly from what he has been doing throughout history and to build you up. So that's his picture. Now for the application. Um, and the application here, I, I think what Paul is going to do in this, this section that we're going to look at, is he's going to ask answer in very clear terms, well, he's going to answer in, in confusing sometimes terms, the very important question, would God ever reject his people? Absolutely not. The question isn't, would God reject his people? The question is, who are his people? And so that's where he's going to go. Um, let me just read this again, because it's been a few minutes, uh, starting in verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer has come, will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospels, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So he starts with this sentence. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Well, first of all, he warns us, don't be wise in your own sight. We kind of covered that. Don't, don't think you've got this all figured out and you're so smart. Don't be wise in your own sight. I want you to understand this mystery. So what is the mystery? Um, in this section, I'm, I got to admit, I'm a little bit at odds with some of the commentators. And so um, I may be wrong here. Um, and so if you disagree with me, that's probably okay. Just make sure you understand why you disagree with me and have good grounds for it. For some of the commentators, they talk about the mystery being the Jews being brought back in. So they're looking ahead to that. When I look at that term, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. We have to look at a New Testament perspective on what mystery is. Mystery is not something that remains hidden. From a New Testament perspective, there is a mystery that has been revealed. Um, so, for example, we'll see in a couple of chapters, uh, Romans 16, beginning in verse 25. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings um, has been made known to the nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. The mystery was hidden for long ages. It has now been revealed and it involves the nations. So I think the clearest uh, definition of that mystery, Ephesians 3, 6, this is the mystery that it, this is the mystery, uh, I'm sorry, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs 
members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That mystery that he wants them to not be ignorant of is the inclusion of the Gentiles as heirs, as members of the same bodies, as partakers of the promises. That's the mystery. And so Colossians 1, starting in verse 26, this mystery hidden for uh, ages and generations has now been revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So again, that mystery that he's talking about here is not something that is continually hidden. It has been revealed. And that mystery, if I'm reading this right, is not the Jews will be brought in, but the Gentiles are brought in. And that's an amazing thing. That's really important for us to understand is that we are included. And that's the mystery that has been around for a long time, but now is fully revealed. And so he says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. And then the next thing he says is a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Um, now, this is where I'm, I'm again at odds with the commentators, because there's a couple of ways to understand this. Um, a partial hardening could mean that the, the effect of the hardening is only partial. It's not a total hardening, that it only has a certain range um, and it's come upon Israel. Or it could mean that there is a portion of Israel who has been hardened. So it's a partial hardening. Is it the hardening is partial or is it Israel, uh, only a portion of Israel has been hardened. Most of the commentators think that it is a partial hardening that has come upon Israel. It means that um, the hardening itself is not complete, but, but only partial, and it's come upon Israel. Um, in Greek, the words will work either way. Um, I wrestled with that for a while last night. I probably need to go back and do some more wrestling just to make sure I'm not I'm, you know, disagreeing with scripture. My take is a portion, a section, a, a, a portion of Israel has been hardened. And that hardening has come upon them um, and, and, and it's, it's, it's present reality. Um, verse seven from a couple of weeks ago, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So I think 11.7, it sounds to me like the partial hardening means there is an elect portion of Israel and they achieved it. And there is a non-elect portion of Israel and they were hardened. So that's why I think it, it's saying a portion of Israel has been hardened, not the hardening is only partial. Um, and so uh, that's, that's what I think is going on. I also remember chapter 9, verse 6. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So there is a distinction to be made in Israel. Um, so this partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So it, this hardening will only last for a period of time, and then the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and that hardening will be, something will happen to it. Um, so many take that to mean that this hardening is partial and it will be removed when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Um, my problem with that is that's not a partial hardening. That's a temporary pardon, a hardening. It's a hardening for a period of time, and then the hardening will be lifted. That doesn't sound partial. It sounds temporary. That's a different concept to me. So what I'm thinking of is that important phrase, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. What is the gent what are the Gentiles coming into? Well, if we read it in the context of the tree analogy, the Gentiles are being grafted in 
They're being taken from a wild tree and brought into a cultivated tree, grafted into that. And the root of that is what God has been doing all along through history. So when we step back and we look, we could say for a long period of time, there were the nations out there. They were all these wild olive trees. And it's not that God wasn't involved in them, but he wasn't working his redemptive purpose as he was in that one olive tree that he cultivated called Israel. Those olive trees were out there and God was involved, but in redemptive history, he focused on this one. And so at this point in redemptive history, a partial hardening happened on Israel. Those hardened branches are broken off and wild olive branches are brought in until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in to that redemptive history. And then what he says is, once that happens, then all Israel will be saved. Actually, what he says is, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. So the bringing in of the Gentiles leads to the salvation of all of Israel. So most would see this promise, most of the commentators see this promise as a future revival in Israel. There will become a time in the future where the Jews will en masse turn to Jesus, their savior. And in that way, all Gentiles will, or all Israel will be saved because the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There's a revival of the Jews. That's the idea. Um, I hope that's true. And I, I really do. I, and I don't think my, my position, my take on this excludes it, but it doesn't lead to it. Um, what does he mean by all Israel then? And this is where I feel like I'm on really shaky ground, but I feel like I'm justified in it. So bear with me if you would. When he says all Israel will be saved, what does he mean by all Israel? There is a fringe idea that at the end of time, when there's a revival in the nation of Israel, all Jews who ever lived will be saved. That they will have been justified. Even those who have died, they will be saved because God chose them, God called them, God worked in them. Uh, that's a minor position. That, that doesn't make a whole bunch of sense. It touches on, on universalism in a way, because these people who live their entire lives rejecting Jesus now are somehow saved. Um, also, I, the big sticking point in that position to me is what about Judas? Judas was for, predestined to go to hell. He was predestined to, to, um, re, uh, to turn Jesus over, and he is now suffering the consequences of that. So is Judas going to be saved? And if Judas is not, then it's not all Israel. So the way that most people understand it orthodoxly is there's this revival, and all the Jews that are alive at that time will be saved. That seems to restrict Israel to a very small group of people, doesn't it? What about the billions of Jews who lived before that who, who have not put their hope in Jesus Christ? That's not all Israel. That's a portion of Israel. So I, I think there's a problem there. So my take on this is, as the Jews are grafted in, as they're brought in, the, the, the unbelieving, I'm sorry, as the unbelieving Jews are taken out of the tree and the Gentiles, the fullness comes in, when all the Jews who are saved and all the Gentiles are saved come into that history, then that means all Israel is saved. In other words, the partial hardening that happened to Israel was this general group of people before Jesus came who were um, the nation of Israel. But Israel then takes on a new meaning halfway through the sentence and changes from the nation to God's people. That's the weakness in my position, and it's the place where I am most uncomfortable, is switching the definition of Israel in mid-sentence. 
but I have a feeling, I just, I think it, it fits the context better because we're going to have a problem here. Israel has to mean something different for either position. Either it doesn't mean all Israel as in all Jews who ever lived, or it does mean all Israel, but it doesn't mean all Jews. It means the Jews and the Gentiles. You see what I'm getting at? It's, it's a difficult uh, problem, but I, I think that's probably the, the better way to do it. Um, I just wish I saw more people doing it. It makes me very uncomfortable that I'm, um, I'm the only one catching that. And so after he makes that statement, he says, as it is written. Um, and so now Paul is going to appeal to Scripture to support his position. He quotes, uh, well, he doesn't quote. He, he interprets Isaiah 59, verses 20 and 21 for us. Um, remember when we've looked at other places where Paul will cite something from the Old Testament, but he'll change it. He'll, he'll interpret it for us. He's not making a mistake with the scripture. He's making it make sense. So for us, he quotes uh, or he cites Isaiah 59, 20. And here's what it says in Isaiah 59, 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to the, uh, those in Jacob who turn from transgression. So Isaiah is looking to the future and he says, a redeemer will come to Zion and to those in Jacob uh, who turn from transgression, those who repent, this, this Redeemer will come in. Paul looks at it post-Christ, and he says, the Deliverer, not the Redeemer, but the Deliverer will come from Zion, not to, but from, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. So what Paul is looking at is he's looking at the same event from two different sides. Isaiah is looking forward to the Redeemer coming into Zion and and saving those who have who have repented. Paul was looking back and he said, the deliverer came from the Zion. Jesus came out of that group of people and he banished ungodliness. Those are those branches being broken off. He didn't banish ungodliness as in make everybody behave well. He banished ungodliness by taking the ungodly out. So that's his interpretation of, of Isaiah 59. And then 21 is even more problematic. What Paul says is, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Isaiah says, and as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth or out of your mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forever or forth and forevermore what's going on there? He really changed that quite a bit. So he points to, this is my covenant with them. But what he does is he interprets that covenant. Isaiah looking forward says, my spirit will be speaking throughout the generations. The spirit that you have, Isaiah, the spirit that speaks through you, Isaiah, will continue to speak throughout the generations. Paul looks at that event of the spirit preaching throughout the generations, and he says, I will take away their sins. And all I could think of when I read this was Acts chapter 2. The, the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles and they go out and they are preaching. It's on their children and on their children's children. And the spirit is speaking through them. He, he is preaching the gospel. And what's the result of that? The people say, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. They said, what shall we do? And Paul, Peter tells them, repent, turn to the Lord, be baptized and you will be saved. I think that's Paul's interpretation of that event. And he's saying, this is what's happening. So if we look at that in the context of our, our discussion here, how will all Israel be saved? Well, if he's interpreting that in light of the events from Pentecost onward, then the Jews and the Gentiles, people from all over the world, will be saved by the preaching of the gospel. 
by, by the Spirit speaking the way he spoke through Isaiah. And so he's looking forward to that. And he's saying, that's what's happening. So those people are being saved in the same way. Now, the context of Isaiah 59 is really pretty fascinating, too. I think if we, if we take the context, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. Um, I could, but I won't. Um, for example, Isaiah uh, 59, verse 16, God says, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. So what Isaiah has been doing in this chapter so far is he's been lamenting the, the injustice, the injustice that's gripped Israel. And he stops and he says, why is there nobody interceding for them? Why is there nobody pleading their case? And then he says, I'll do it. I'll plead their case. His own right arm will bring salvation. And so I think that's looking forward to the nation is a mess and I'm going to send a savior. That's going to where he says in a few verses, the deliverer will come from Zion or the redeemer will come into Zion. That's his, his offspring. He's going to send that redeemer, that man to stand in the gap. And then he, he talks in verse 17, he, he, he paints this picture of putting on his battle gear, uh, a breastplate of righteousness, a helmet of salvation, a cloak of, of righteousness. And then he says, according to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands, he will render payment. So he dresses for battle and then he engages them and he fights them. And then he says, after he engages them, he says, so they will fear the name of the Lord from the West and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream with the wind of the Lord, which the wind of the Lord drives. So even in that, that um, portion of Isaiah, the picture is the nations are gonna hear from the east to the west, they're going to hear this salvation of the Lord. From the east to the west, they're going to behold his glory. So even in that, we get the Gentiles being brought in. So now the really hard part. I mean, I thought that that previous part was difficult. I got to tell you, this is the verse in all of Romans that scared me the most. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. Lord, please make it clear. Verse 28, as regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers. So those who look forward to a future um, um, revival in Israel where they will come and they will turn to Jesus, that's what they see this saying is, is they're beloved uh, for the sake of the forefathers. God hasn't removed all of Israel and cut them out and said, I'm not going to have anything to do with them. But right now, for this period of time, they're enemies for the sake of the gospel. And isn't that what Paul had been saying earlier, is if their rejection meant salvation to the world, how much more will their inclusion be? Um, that, that's what he'd been saying. And so it sounds like maybe I'm wrong, um, and maybe I am, because <laughs> this verse is hard to interpret. And again, I feel a little bit on edge interpreting this way, but it, what seems to make the most sense to me is looking back again at Israel before Jesus came as the whole nation, um, there were those in, in the nation of Israel who God foreknew. Um, has God rejected his people? No, he did not reject his people whom he foreknew. So he, he had elected some, and so they are beloved. And why are they beloved? Because God said, I'm not going to cut off the entire nation because of their unfaithfulness for the sake of the forefathers. I promised to Abraham that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars. I promised to Jacob, to Isaac, 
I promised throughout history, I promised David that there would be one to sit on his throne. I'm not going to cut all of those people off because I promised to the forefathers. So they're beloved, the, the elect ones, the ones that I foreknew, they're beloved. But the other ones, the ones that have been hardened, they're enemies. And they're enemies for the sake of the gospel. I allowed them to turn and to reject Jesus so that it would drive the nations or drive the gospel out to the nations. So again, this, this feels kind of hokey because they change his meaning in mid-sentence. They are enemies. They are beloved. And it doesn't mean all of them. It means a portion are enemies, a portion are beloved. Um, don't push me on that because I'll probably get really shaky and maybe cry. So, um, but that just seems, I mean, fitting the flow of chapters 9 through 11, that just seems to make the most sense to me. Um, as uncomfortable as I am saying it, that just seems to be the, what works. And so the next verse is also troubling. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Um, so those who take a future revival approach would look at that and say, you see, the promises made to Israel stand. They will receive those promises because the gifts and the calling are irrevocable. God hasn't taken it away from them. That nation will receive what God had promised them in the future at some point in time. Their gifts and their calling are irrevocable. Um, some take that to mean that um, in the millennium, when Jesus comes and reigns, Israel, the Jews, will be given the exact plot of land that God promised them, that that is still a, a waiting fulfillment for them in the future. Um, they take that to mean that, um, that in Ezekiel, when he describes that temple being built, they will build their temple in, in Jerusalem. Right now, there's a big, huge dome of the rock sitting where the temple is supposed to be. They look to the future. They say that future revival in Israel, that means that they're going to take that temple or that uh, dome of the rock down and build the temple there. Um, there are problems with those interpretations. Um, and I don't particularly hold to them. For one, when Joshua brought the people into the promised land, he said, God has delivered every single promise you, he's made to you. He's given you everything that he said he would. He's delivered on all of them. You're as numerous as the stars. The land has been deeded to you. You may not have conquered it yet, but it has been given to you. It is now your, your uh, possession. And then the problem with the temple in the future and that revived Israel, that, that temple being set up is they're offering sacrifices. They're, they're actually offering, uh, making offerings on an altar with Jesus standing there going, I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I have completed all of this, and you're going to continue to offer offerings. So I don't take that temple to be that future temple that's going to be built on the, the um, Temple Mount and those kind of things. So then what do I take this to mean when it says that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable? Well, I think what that means is God has defined something as his people. He has said, these are my people. I have made tremendous promises to them. I have given them tremendous gifts. I, I will lead them. I will be with them. I have come to redeem them. And I am not revoking those things. Even though I have hardened a portion of who was once my people, I have sent some of them away because they are not my people. There are people amongst that group who are still mine, and I'm bringing in Gentiles into that group of my people, and my promises will stand. So go back to that olive tree for a moment. If that's talking about redemptive history, God sinks those roots not into fantastic stories, but into reality. They're, they're sunk in the ground. And so Abraham was a man. He lived. He walked on the earth. He had children. He had struggles. 
And, and he did things in space and in time. He didn't just appear out of nowhere, walk down a mountain and say, hi, I'm here and this is what's happened. It, it's recorded in, in things that, in chronicles of what happened in his life. Um, every time we turn a spade over in Israel, there's another discovery of something new that proves what the Bible had been saying. There's David. There's, there's proof, there's physical, tangible proof that David was a king in Israel. There's these things that God has done. He sunk them into reality. His scriptures, his Bible that he's given us, it didn't fall out of the sky on a rock and suddenly appear. It wasn't somebody go, went out into the wilderness and, and found golden tablets laying around. God wrote it in history, in time, in people's lives. And so that's those roots sinking down into the dirt, deeking, reaching deep down into the dirt. It's real. We're standing next to this tree. It's solid. It can be trusted. And so those gifts and those callings that God promised, those things that we re see recorded over and over again, they're real. And so if Paul's point in all of this is to answer that question, would God ever reject his people? By no means. Then what he's showing us is God is and has and will continue to justify his people by faith. Look at Abraham, the liar. He, would, he, would, he was so cowardly, he put his wife at risk. Tell everybody you're my sister. And he puts her at risk. And what did God do? Did God go, well, I'm done with you, loser? No, he met him and he said, Abraham, I'm going to make your offspring as numerous as the stars. I'm going to give you all this land. It's going to be wonderful. He goes to Abraham and he loves him anyway. Why? Because Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was justified by faith. What about, let's go skip a couple generations, Jacob. Before was Jacob was born, before he could do anything good or bad, he was told that the older brother would serve the younger. And what did Jacob do? Did he live the rest of his life going, I just trust this wonderful promise that God has made to me. I, I believe him. It's going to be mine. I just, no, he spent the rest of his life sneaking and, and ripping people off and pulling um, different stunts, trying to make sure that he got those things. He lied to his blind father. His, his elderly, blind father, he deceived him, trying to steal what was already his. And God justified him. So at the end of his life, as he leans on his staff and he blesses his children, he's looking forward to the promise that God had made him. In the future, this is going to happen. David, a man after God's own heart. Would you like to have, wouldn't you love for God to tell you that's who you are? You're a man after God's own heart. You're a woman after God's own heart. What a tremendous blessing that is. He got to write Psalms. He, he got to participate in the authoring of the scriptures. And he slept with a married woman and killed her husband. But when he did and his sin was found out, what did he do? He went into the temple and he cried out, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Don't remember my sins. He was justified by faith. So that tree that we're tapped into, that we're blended into, the gifts and the callings that were theirs are ours. And so there's the faithful Jews who remain faithful. There, there are Jews who have been plucked out and dropped on the ground and are grafted back in. And then there's this full number of Gentiles being brought into that tree. And all of them together, justified by faith alone, are God's people. Would God reject his people? Never. It, it is not even conceivable. So when you think about the idea of being justified by faith, not by anything you do, 
what you have here in this picture of this, this tree is God has always justified by faith. He will continue to justify by faith, but it's faith in him, not faith in you. And so do those things. Don't be proud. Don't be arrogant. Be afraid that you're trusting in your own goodness at some point. And so he ends with this, this statement, uh, for God has consigned all the disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So when you look at history for a long time, there were God's people. Uh, there was Adam and Eve. There was Seth. There was Noah. There was um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, on and on. This, this small sliver throughout history of people that God was working with. The rest of the nations, he let go their own way, and they were disobedient. For a period of time, he endured with much patience. He let the nations go their own way. While he's working in Israel to bring about something majestic, something unheard of, something incredible, the birth of the Messiah, the arrival of Jesus. And so when that happens, when Jesus has his ministry, now all of a sudden the nations are turning and coming in. They're the ones who are being faithful. And the Jews who should have the answer, who should be able to do this, now they're consigned to disobedience. And so when we look at the grand scope of history, what we get is we all need to be justified by faith. The Gentiles were going their own way. The Jews now are going their own way. And yet God is working through all of that. He is being faithful to his people. He will save him. So next week, what we're going to look at is Paul's response to this tremendous truth. What is the proper and good response to, to incredible theology like this? The only proper good response is doxology. Praise the Lord. I just can't believe this is true. This is such an amazing, beautiful, wonderful thing. And so next week, we're going to do some work on a theology of doxology, a theology of what it means to drink in such rich theology and not go, aren't I clever? but say, praise the Lord. Isn't he wonderful? Look what he's done for me. Would God ever reject his people? Never, never, never. Jesus has died for you. You will not be rejected. He is not going to change the table or change the requirements to be his people. He hasn't. He never did. He's always been working by justification through faith alone. So Paul answers his question by no means. And, and we just can't say it strong enough. So with that, let me close us in prayer and anticipate our doxology next week. Lord, you have promised things to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. You have promised things to Moses, to Joshua. You promised things to Samuel and to David. Lord, you promised things to Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. Malachi. And Lord, after 400 years of silence, those promises came true in a baby in a manger in a way that nobody could have anticipated it coming. And so, Lord, we can now say that we are heirs with Abraham, that, that we will, since we are offspring of Abraham, inherit the entire world. That we can say with Paul in Galatians that if we're in Christ, we are children of Abraham, heirs according to promise. Lord, you have not rejected your people. We are grateful to be counted in that group. And so, Lord, as we look not just at the Jewish branches on the ground, but also to those other olive trees with all of those branches, 
Lord, would you continue to bring those branches into the tree? Would you gather up more Jews from the ground, graft them into the tree that they should be part of? And Lord, do that extraordinary work of grabbing a, a branch off a foreign tree and, and grafting it into this olive tree as well. Lord, save more people. It doesn't depend on human exertion or will, but on God who has mercy. And so Lord, have mercy. And Father, would you show us as a, as a group of believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, how it is that you fitted us to accomplish that purpose? How might we win more people to Jesus Christ? How might we include more branches in this olive tree? And Lord, we know that that power resides with you and that we drink in that, that nourishing sap, that nourishing um, um, fluid from that, that tree that we've been grafted into. And that is you, that is your spirit flowing through us. Make us those people, we pray. And Lord, I pray also that we would never, ever trust in our own righteousness. Lord, that we would never assume that we have been chosen because there was something inherently good in us, something that set us apart from anybody else. Grant us humility in all of these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.